Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Stewart Observatory. I was just checking. Yeah, I guess that clock is right. Okay. Um, we welcome you to Stewart Observatory on this beautiful night in Tucson, Arizona, and we welcome those of you who are listening to our podcast via the World Wide Web on iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. This is our fifth lecture of the fall 2013 semester. Uh, I want to remind you we have one more lecture, which will be two weeks from tonight, and there isn't a basketball game. I checked. Yes. So parking will be easier in two weeks. On December 2nd, Bea Miller will be here to talk about Comet Eyes-On, and I hope that we actually have good news to report. We'll know after Thanksgiving if the comet survives its passage around the sun. Um, also, we do have uh, oh, and the other thing I wanted to remind you is that hopefully at the next lecture, I will have a schedule for you for next spring. Definitely, we have a lecture scheduled for January 27th, but I'm trying to find one for January 13th. But I'll give you some idea of the next lectures in the new year. Also, if you are a student here for an assignment, I will stamp your assignments down at this table at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Also. Uh, we have, if you're not on our email list already and you want to get emails about the Stewart Observatory public evenings and other events that happen at Stewart Observatory, feel free to give us your name and email address on the sign-up sheet in the back of the room. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, we will have a book signing because our speaker tonight is an author. So the book signing will be held in the main lobby of Stewart Observatory at the conclusion of the lecture. We'll have punch and cookies, so feel free to come over talk to the author, maybe you might want to buy his book, and the 21-inch telescope is open. The Raymond White telescope is open for public viewing. So we're very happy tonight to have an out-of-town guest, because usually for these public evenings, we have local speakers. But uh, tonight's uh, uh, speaker comes from Virginia, from James Madison University. Which, which town in Virginia is that? Harrisonburg. Harrisonburg, Virginia. Yep. Yep. Uh, our speaker tonight is Professor Paul Bogard. Professor Bogard received his bachelor's degree in religion from Carleton College. Who knows where Carleton College is? Yes. Minnesota, yes. Minnesota. And then he received his PhD in, now remember this, literature and environment. And he received it from the University of Nevada, which is in Reno. He is now an assistant professor at James Madison University. And he is here to talk to us about the end of night, right? The end of night. The end of night. The name of the book. Professor Bogard. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, I also want to say a word of thanks to Chris Kokinos, who's uh, from the English department, who's been my host here uh, tonight. So thanks very much, Chris. Um, and thanks to all of you for being here. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to speak with you tonight and to share with you um, my book, The End of Nights. Um, what I'd like to do is to uh, read a little bit from the book and uh, then also show you some images about the issue of light pollution and the value of darkness for us. So um, I, I, just for my own sake, probably want to preface my remarks by saying um, I'm not an astronomer. I am. Uh, I'm a creative writer. I'm an English professor. Uh, I studied literature, and I'm going to start by reading a poem. So 
If you came for uh, physics, um, you are in the wrong place. So. <laughs> exactly. There's probably physics, a lot of physics here. I just don't recognize it. I don't see it. So um, I'll start with a poem, which is the epigraph for the book, which is uh, the little writing here the, to get things started, to set the mood. And it's a poem um, that I love by the wonderful American writer Wendell Berry. It's called To Know the Dark. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So when I set out to write uh, The End of Night, I really wanted to create a book that was full of experiences. I really wanted to go out myself and have experiences with people who are out at night. So amateur astronomers, policemen, ER docs, um, night owls, all sorts of people. Um, one of the first experiences I had was to fly from my hometown of Minneapolis to Las Vegas. And I, I got there at about sunset and I rented a car and I drove up to Great Basin National Park, which I hope some of you have been to a wonderful national park up in uh, east central Nevada. And so in the course of that journey, I went from uh, the Las Vegas Strip, which when I talked to the folks at NOAA, they told me is the brightest pixel on any of their photographs of the Earth, that pixel, to one of the very darkest places we have left in the lower 48, Great Basin National Park. So from the brightest to the darkest, which actually is the journey that I take in the book as well. And I'll talk with you a little bit more about that. I start in very bright places like Las Vegas and Times Square, and I go to some of the darkest places I could find in the lower 48. But during this one particular drive, I uh, realized after a little while that I was out in the middle of nowhere, as they say. And I looked all around, and all I saw was darkness no artificial lights. And here I was racing along on Route 93 in the Nevada desert, and it reminded me of something I used to do when I was a teenager. And I'll read you from that section. In the Minneapolis suburb where I grew up lies a golf course with a road cutting through its center and a white picket fence on either side. As a teenager, I drove an old Volvo that allowed me to turn off its headlights and sail a sloping, curving road lit only by parking lights at 35 miles an hour. The red wagon I own now is too smart and safe for that. The headlights remain on whether I want them to or not. And I assume the same is true of my brand new rental, but I'm wrong. The temptation is immediate and irresistible. And despite the fact I'm not going 35 miles an hour on the straight highway, but nearly three times 35, I rotate the dial. In an instant, the road disappears, my stomach drops, and I feel as though flung from the edge of the earth. The sensation is exhilarating fear as my every fiber demands to know what I'm doing. I turn the headlights back on and feel my heart return to beating. The highway before and behind me holds no other cars, 
and no artificial lights shine in the Black Sea on either side. I turn the lights off again and again, longer each time, long enough for my eyes to focus on what little of the highway my parking lights reveal, long enough to look ahead at the starry night flowing toward and over and past and think of Star Trek Starship Enterprise accelerating into space, long enough to feel the car begin to float from the road's surface and fall into the sky. The temptation is to leave off the lights, to drive in the dark more than these few moments. But while I'm happy to know the thrill of boldly going 100 miles an hour through the desert at night, to feel catapulted from Earth into space, I am also happy to be alive. And so I slow to 20 miles an hour. It's what seems now a trolling speed. And so I turn even the parking lights off and lean my head from the driver's window. The warm, dry air flows over. The asphalt rolls underneath. And I realize I'm headed directly toward a meeting at the horizon with the Milky Way as it bends from one end to the other. As though on its own, the car slows to a stop in the middle of Route 93 in the middle of the Great Basin Desert. Any car or truck coming from either direction will show long before I'd need to move. Unless, of course, they are driving with their lights off too, staring up at the sky. Another early experience I had was to go to uh, upstate New York to meet with uh, the writer Bob Berman. Some of you, uh, if you're an astronomy buff, might know Bob's work. He's written uh, many articles on astronomy, and he likes to do it with a sense of humor. That's what he prides himself on, is kind of a joviality. And he took me out to his uh, do-it-yourself observatory and uh, showed me uh, the moon was out that night, so we looked at the moon. And then we looked at Saturn. And while we were out looking at these things, Bob told me that his all-time favorite article that he had written was one he called, um, it was based on all the dumb questions he'd gotten over the years as an astronomy writer. And he titled this uh, article, An F in Science. And so of course I said, well, what's the dumbest question you've ever been asked? And he, um, Pause and he said, uh, well, it's hard to top. Um, if a solar eclipse is so dangerous, why are they having it? <laughs> but I also quite like, uh, I think the runner-up to that was, um, does Mars have a sun like our sun? But while we were out there looking at Saturn, when he first showed me Saturn, I, when I looked through the viewfinder, without thinking about it, I just said, oh my gosh. Like it was just, if you've ever seen Saturn through a telescope, it takes your breath away. It's amazing. And he laughed and he said, you know, I've shown Saturn through a telescope to more than a thousand people through this telescope. And they always say one of two things. They always say either, oh my gosh, or some variant of that. Or they say, that's not real. And he's been accused of, being, of placing a photograph of Saturn in the telescope. God knows how that would happen, but I, you know. And we got, to, we got to talking about that 
why is that? Why do people react that way? And we started to talk about how most Americans have lost a first-hand experience of the night sky. They've never seen this stuff with their own eyes. Um, and it reminded me of an experience I had had. I was very lucky to have. I've had what I would describe as a long-term good fortune when it comes to nights, which is to have grown up in Minnesota and my family has a cabin on a lake in the northern part of the state. So every year of my life I've gone to this lake and gotten to experience natural darkness. But I've also had particular moments in my life where I've seen some amazing things. And I'll read uh, one of those moments here. This is a moment that I told Bob about as we were having this conversation. <clears throat> the most beautiful starry night I've ever seen was more than 20 years ago when I was backpacking through Europe as an 18-year-old high school graduate. I had traveled south from Spain into Morocco and from there south to the Atlas Mountains at the edge of the Sahara to a place where nomadic tribes came in from the desert to barter and trade a place that when I look on a map, I can no longer find. One night in a youth hostel that was more like a stable, I woke and walked out into a snowstorm. But it wasn't the snow I was used to in Minnesota or anywhere else I'd been. Standing bare chest to cool nights, wearing flip-flops and shorts, I let a storm of stars swirl around me. I remember no light pollution. I remember no lights. But I remember the light around me, the sense of being lit by starlight, and that I could see the ground to which the stars seemed to be floating down. I saw the sky that night in three dimensions. The sky had depth, some stars seemingly close, some much farther away. The Milky Way so well defined, it had what astronomers call structure that sense of its twisting depths. I remember stars from one horizon to the other, stars stranger in their numbers than the cart full of wood, the wooden cart full of severed goat heads I'd seen that morning, making a night sky so plush it still seems like a dream. So much was right about that night. It was a time in my life when I was every day experiencing something new. I felt open to everything as though I were made of clay and the world was imprinting upon me its breathtaking beauty. Standing nearly naked under that Moroccan sky, skin against the air, the dark, the stars, the night pressed its impression and my lifelong connection was sealed. So I told Bob about that experience and he laughed and he said uh, a good antidote to that experience is when my mother-in-law visited us from Manhattan and we heard the car drive up and the door open and then the door shut and then there was this pause and then we heard her walk up to the front door my wife went to the front door and she opened the door and before she could say anything her mom said Marcy what are all those white dots in the sky I think when you live in a place like Tucson, or I've been out west talking a lot lately, people have access to dark skies and, and darkness. You're fortunate in many, in many ways, but 
if you've lived in the East or if you live there like I do now, you know that that's not true and that it isn't so crazy for somebody to say something like that, that we live in a time now where people's experience of the night sky can be 6, 12, 20 stars, which is unbelievable. Um, why is that? Well, I'd like to show you some images that kind of get to the heart of that. So why is that? Uh, it's our overuse and misuse of artificial light at night, or otherwise known as light pollution. So in an image like this, uh, actually a compilation of satellite photographs of the world at night, um, you see almost all, it's, first of all, I would just say it's a beautiful image. It's very remarkable. I, it's fascinating to look at. It is also an image of waste. The light that you're seeing here, almost all the light you're seeing here is just going up into the sky. It's, it's being wasted. It's not doing anybody any good. Here's a close-up of the US. These photographs are about a dozen years old as well, so uh, we're only getting brighter. When we talk about light pollution, again, the overuse and misuse of artificial light at night, we can talk about it in three primary ways, kind of shorthand ways. The first is what we call sky glow. You, here you have a back-to-back -back image, side-by-side -side image of the same street in Toronto. The image on the left is taken in 2003 during the power outage in that part of the country. The image on the right is what it looks like every other, all the other times, what it looks like tonight probably. So back to back, the same house in the foreground. There's no electric light here. There's the usual case there. So sky glow, glare. We see this all over the place, especially with these what we call security lights or barn lights, pole lights, what have you, that are all over this country. And glare is light that's shining all up into the sky, into our eyes, and too often into our bedrooms, like I'll show you here, what we call light trespass, where we have on the left, the brand new science building that the college I was teaching at in Wisconsin was very proud of, shining not only on their property, but then across the street, bathing this house on the right in light. You can see, oops, shoot, I didn't want that. Oh, I got you. Oh, there it is, the green light. You see the windows here uh, have black curtains hanging in them so that the students can sleep at night to block out the light. Light trespass is one that really uh, impresses me. We live in a country that is obsessed with property rights, but when it comes to light trespass, we seem oblivious to it. So you can, your neighbor's lights can be shining into your house and you have no real recourse for it. So sky glow, glare, light trespass. Every town and city in the, in the US and across much of the developed world has a recipe for light pollution. I'll give you the ingredients of that recipe. The first one, stadium lighting. These are the uh, lights, this is Harrisonburg where I live. These are the lights on the intramural fields at James Madison University. They stay on all night long. And I can guarantee you there are not intramural games going on all night long. Uh, when I first moved to town, I asked somebody, why do they stay on all night long? 
and I was told that um, the school likes having them on all, all night long because it's good advertising for the school. Interstate 81 runs right through campus, and they figure that anybody who's driving through is like, wow, James Madison. <laughs> Parking lots, uh, again, lit all night long, oftentimes when they're like this one, completely empty. Gas stations lit so brightly. Um, again, we're, I'm giving this lecture in a place that doesn't look like this um, to, in, in, to a large extent, but most of the places I go do look like this. And parking lots and gas stations, now the estimates are that they are lit 10 times as brightly as they were just 20 years ago. So we've grown all the time with this, far beyond the point of safety and security, which is the excuse that we mostly hear when it comes to this. This is all about getting you to stop and buy stuff. It really has very little to do with safety and security. Uplit billboards like this one, the light shining from below up into space, or uh, LED billboards like this, which are becoming more and more prevalent. Um, I was just up in a, up, where am I? Over in a very small town in uh, Oklahoma. I mean, really small town in Oklahoma. And they had not one this big, but a smaller one outside a church. And it was just incredible how bright it was. It makes you wonder why. These are what we call uh, wall packs, these uh, lights here that are shining horizontally. They're meant ostensibly to light the parking lot here, but they go on for miles. They will just go on and on. So horizontal lighting is part of that recipe. Well, let me take you back to uh, the, this photograph of Europe at night, because when we look at these pictures, one of the things we might think is that if you get out of the cities and towns, you get back to darkness. Right? Take a look, for example, at Italy here, where we have Rome and Naples, for example, Milan up here. This area right here looks pretty dark, for example. About 12 years ago, a couple of Italian astronomers wanted to show the true extent of light pollution and that, in fact, there was no place you could go in this part of Europe where the skies aren't impacted by artificial light. And so they used uh, computer graphics to illustrate this point, and this is what they came up with. So there's that same area that I was pointing out in Italy, but you can see that from here down through here, there's no areas, basically, of natural darkness left. Here's the image of the US. Keep in mind, though, that the data they used for these maps is from 1997. One of the interesting things they did with this data, for the US at least, is to show us not only 1997, but to estimate backwards to the 50s and the 70s, and then forwards to 2025 to show the trajectory of where we're headed. And that's what this is here. So I, I'm sure I can tell just by looking that some folks remember this uh, in the audience tonight. I, I can even remember this from being a kid. Um, this may be where we're headed if nothing changes. So this is one way to think about light pollution in the states right now. Here's another way. This is something we call, it's an abbreviated version of something we call the Bortle scale. 
a scale of nine to one with darkness, nine being our brightest places, one being our darkest places. A couple things stand out to me with this scale. First is that most Americans live most of their lives in level five and above. They rarely or ever are down in this kind of natural darkness. When I first started researching the end of night, I asked Chad Moore, who is uh, the head of the National Park Service's night sky team. They go around all the national park areas measuring the levels of darkness there. I said, where can I go to find a level one spot in the US, in the lower 48? Or is there a place I can go? And he said, maybe, you might. Uh, Dan Derisco, who's also on the night sky team, said he's taken measurements over over 200 times for the Park Service, and he's found three level ones out of 200. So it's very rare. What was once everywhere is now almost extinct in the lower 48. <clears throat> so when it came to my book, I took that Bortle scale and borrowed it for my table of contents. And I start with the very bright places and work my way down to the darkest places here. And I just want to briefly talk about these three metal chapters. Chapter 7 has everything to do with this issue of safety and security because, again, we think that we need all this lights for safety and security. And I'll show you a couple slides that show that, at the very least, safety and security and light at night is a complex issue. In many respects, we're actually made less safe by more light. Okay? Chapter 6, Body, Sleep, and Dreams, has to do with the human health effects of artificial light at night. And there are three primary effects, I'll tell you briefly. First of all, all this artificial light at night is disrupting our sleep and contributing to sleep disorders. Sleep disorders are tied to every major disease that we're dealing with now in, this, in industrialized countries. Number two, artificial light at night is confusing our circadian rhythms, those internal 24-hour rhythms that orchestrate our body's inner health. And number three, artificial light at night is impeding the production of the hormone melatonin in our bodies. It's a hormone that's only produced in the darkness, and the lack of melatonin in our blood has been linked to an increased risk for breast cancer and prostate cancer. So you throw all those things together, and the World Health Organization, for example, now considers working the night shift a probable carcinogen. So when I was researching the book, folks, researchers would say to me, can I tell you that light at night gives you cancer? No, we can't say that. But we can say that light at night is completely unnatural. We have not evolved at all to exist in all this light, and that it seems to be having some real effects on our physical health. Oops. And then finally, the ecology of darkness. For me, maybe the most important chapter, it has everything to do with how our light at night is impacting our fellow creatures. So we have more than 60% of invertebrates, insects primarily. 30% of vertebrate species are purely nocturnal. So many other species are crepuscular. That is, they're most active at dawn and dusk. Our artificial light at night is the disruptor and destroyer of their habitat. 
they have not evolved to our artificial light at night either. So some of those creatures you've probably heard of, the sea turtles in Florida, for example, um, who come on shore to lay their eggs. When the hatchlings come out of the sand, they've evolved to swim toward the brightest light on the horizon, which for m hundreds of millions of years was starlight and moonlight on the ocean water, which is the direction they want to head. But now is condominiums, parking lots, and streets. When they crawl that way, they meet their end pretty quickly. We have more than 450 birds that migrate at night, species of birds that migrate at night in North America alone. They're affected by our lights at night. Bats, moths, so important in terms of pollination, in terms of the food chain. These are heavily affected as well. So we're really having an impact on the ecology with all this light at night. <laughs> I'd like to read to you um, a little bit about the place I know best at night from the ecology of darkness. I apologize, the slide is a little bit out of focus. So the cabin in northern Minnesota where I was lucky enough to grow up visiting and experiencing real nights is still very dark. It's not as dark as it was, but it's still pretty great. Um, and this is a short passage about that area. We swam with flashlights one summer as kids, my cousins and I. Straight beams of white light sorting through black water. We'd heard the story of two friends snowmobiling the winter before, of their going through the ice, of drowning. I used to envision my beam finding skeletons still strapped to swallowed machines. Jorge Luis Borges wrote, I think one should work into a story the idea of not being sure of all things, because that's the way reality is. There's so much unknown in the lake's wild nights, the way owls hunt and fly without sound in the dark, the way wolves drift through the woods like smoke evaporating at the first hint of morning light. But this is the night I know best. From the edge of our dock, from the edge of the woods, from our screened-in porch, I watch and listen. And on nights when the lake calms, I pull the ancient aluminum canoe from under the cedar trees and push it out into water, heavy like black oil, though clean and clear and cool. I back from dark shoreline shadows, paddling through stars, and raise a gold moon from the, from the trees. Here the moon is as it ought to be everywhere, big, bright, beautiful. It moves through its seven phases with confidence, climbing over the woods behind our house and crossing over the lake at its own quiet pace. Its light is a gift from the sun, a reflection of the star shining on the other side of the world. Remarkably, the moon's gray ash and rock reflect only 7% of the light sent its way, about as much as a sidewalk. But that's enough light to illuminate the forest, bringing it alive with the scents and sounds of countless crepuscular nocturnal species flying, hunting, singing, breathing. In ecosystems all over the world, it's the same. 
The dark provides the cover. The moon provides the light. And while the humans are home in their boxes, watching our boxes, the nocturnal creatures keep this world alive. I'd like to show you two slides that briefly illustrate this issue of bright lights and safety and security. In this, this is actually a slide from Tucson, um, appropriately enough. Usually I'm not in Tucson, so that is <laughs> kind of different, but here we go. A yard in Tucson with a typical security light, as we say. Very bright, ostensibly keeping us safe, lighting up this area. In order to deal with light pollution, the most important thing we can do is to shield our lights. In the next picture I'll show you, the photographer's gonna hold up his hand and shield that light to keep it from going straight up into the sky, into our eyes. And when he does that, you can see the bad guy standing in the fence. So let's go back to that first one. He's there. You can see him. But the effect of this very bright security light that we need for safety and security is to make it harder for us to see him. Cast shadows. We are illuminated. The bad guy can see us. We can't see him. So again, I don't want to say that, and nobody I talked to said we shouldn't have light at nights. What I do want to say is that we should use light at night thoughtfully, responsibly, intelligently, right? Shield our lights. We can do that with ball fields like these in Flagstaff. This is the before picture. This is the after picture. We can do that with our street lights. I, I sort of feel like saying, I don't need to tell you guys this, right? You see this when, you, when, when you're in Tucson, but I can tell you that most places in the US have no idea about this, right? Streetlights that look like this. This is in Florence, Italy. When you have shielded lights, you can see all the way down the streets. You can see what's, what's coming. You can see your way, right? The other thing that happens when you shield your lights, and this is brand new, a brand new graphic from Chris Luganville up in Flagstaff at the US Naval Observatory. On the left, we have Las Vegas and four other cities in the west. On the right, in the middle here, we have if those lights were shielded, the effect of light pollution. But when you shield your lights, you don't need to use as much light. You don't use, need to use as much energy. So if we were to reduce the energy, we could actually bring the effect down to this. Now the trick part of this trick question is that oftentimes what we do is shield our lights and then keep using the same amount of energy so it doesn't have the same effect, but it could have that effect. Let me close with just a few little, a few images here um, that, to illustrate a point that I want to leave you with, which is that light at night is a wonder. It's a miracle. We're gonna have it. We want it. It can be very beautiful, whether it's like this in London or in Paris, where they've spent the last 30 years relighting the city. They've spent 10 years and several million dollars relighting, simply relighting Notre Dame here, for example. Santa Fe, beautiful light like this. 
For this light to be effective, though, for the light to be symbolic, for light to have power and beauty, though, we need darkness. I often say that nobody holds a candlelight vigil in the afternoon, right? We do it at night. We do it in the dark when the light will have its symbolic power. Let's not forget the beauty and power, though, of natural light as well, of moonlight like this, or beautiful starlights like this, or like this. Let's not forget about the power of darkness and light at night to influence our souls and our spirits, our creativity, our imagination. This Van Gogh painting from the late 1800s from the south of France. A couple things about it I'll tell you. You see the Big Dipper up here. Scholars have gone back and found that when Van Gogh painted this painting, the, the Big Dipper was actually behind him in the sky. He just borrowed it and put it up there because he thought it looked better. I was very excited to go to this spot. You can go to the location where he painted this. There's a poster there that they say, you know, on this spot Van Gogh painted A Starry Night Over the Rhone. So I went to Arles. I waited until it got dark. Very excited to go see, stand at the spot that Van Gogh standed, to stood at, stand it at. And here it is. <clears throat> so there's the poster saying, but by the time you get there, you're so blinded by the light, you don't see much anyway. So. We do still have beautiful skies. This is uh, a night I was out with the park service in Death Valley. And going back to the Bortle scale and thinking about where were we in terms of darkness, this would be a two, they told me. So this kind of night, um, why is it a two? Because of the glow from Los Angeles down here on the horizon. But still, this was a wonderful, amazing night. I hope most people in here, many people in here, have had this experience where your night vision gets better after 10 minutes. It gets even better after 45. But if you stay out for several hours, at least for me, it was like the eye doctor when they turn those things, when they're testing your vision, those of you who've had that done, and they say, is this better? Is this better? Is this better? And all of a sudden, there it is, and you see it. That's what happened here. It just was, all of a sudden, it was like, wow. Dan DeRisco from the Park Service who took this painting or picture told me that this is from the racetrack in Death Valley. This was one of the places that he considered a one. I'll close tonight with a, a short uh, reading from the book. Um, thanks again for being here. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Thanks again to Chris and to Tom for having me. And I'm happy to answer questions and to sign books afterwards as well. So. <clears throat> Our sun is one star in a disc-shaped swarm of several hundred billion stars, writes astronomer Chet Ramo. That disc-shaped swarm is our Milky Way galaxy, and what arcs in three dimensions above this dark Nevada desert is the outer arm of that spiral toward which we look from our inner galaxy location. 
Ramo continues, I have often constructed a model of the Milky Way galaxy on a classroom floor by pouring a box of salt into a pinwheel pattern. The demonstration is impressive, but the scale is wrong. If a grain of salt were to accurately represent a typical star, then the separate grains should be thousands of feet apart. A numerically and dimensionally precise model of the galaxy would require 10,000 boxes of salt scattered in a flat circle larger than a cross-section of the Earth. This means that every star in our night sky, every individual star any human has ever seen with his or her naked eye, is part of our galaxy and its several hundred billion stars. Outside our galaxy exist innumerable other galaxies. One recent estimate put the number at 500 billion. At some quick point, the size of the universe becomes overwhelming. It's distances and numbers bending our brains as we try to comprehend the incomprehensible, that our night sky is but one tiny plot in a glowing garden too big to imagine. But of course, for all of human history, we have indeed imagined. Ancient civilizations from North America to Australia and South America created constellations not only from groups of individual stars, but even from the black shapes made by the gas and dust that lie between Earth and our view of the Milky Way's smoke-like stream. And for ages, we imagined it might well be smoke or steam or even milk. Not until 1609 did Galileo's telescope confirm what he suspected, that the Milky Way's glow was the gathered light of countless stars. In these countless stars, in their clusters and colors and constellations, in the shooting showers of blazing dust and ice, we have always found beauty. And in this beauty, the overwhelming size of the universe has seemed less ominous and Earth's own beauty more incredible. If indeed the numbers and distances of the night sky are so large they become nearly meaningless, then let us find the meaning under our feet. There is no other place to go. The night sky makes this clear. So let us go dark. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Bogard. We have plenty of time for questions. Any questions for Professor Bogard? Oh, I will ask you to speak into the microphone. Other than Death Valley, what were some of the areas the National Park helped you identify as ones? What they told me was uh, southern Utah has potentially ones. It, it changes from night to night. That's the thing. You know, you can't say if you go here, you'll definitely have a one experience. It depends on some of the, the conditions. But there are places that you can go like southern Utah that are, you have a better chance. I also had some wonderful nights in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. Probably not a one, but maybe a two. Pretty wonderful. Um, other places in the west, nowhere east of the Mississippi. Any in Arizona? 
Yeah, from time to time, the Grand Canyon is, is phenomenal. Thanks. Um, I saw this type of starry night at about 3,000 feet in central Washington. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and a couple of times in the high country of Yosemite. But um, my question was, is that photography makes it difficult to illustrate what you're trying to say. And I go back to those two photographs in Tucson with the bad guy. Um, the human eye would have seen him. I think the human eye would have seen him, whereas the camera would not. The camera meter is attracted by that glaring light. Right. And so he's darkened out. Right. So because, you know, the, using the f-stops, the camera is maybe, especially digital, three to three and a half stops, whereas the human eye is ten stops. So, I mean, I'm not arguing. I think that's... No, no, I, no it's fine. And it, it's used to make a point, for sure, primarily. But I would say that all you have to do, and you can do this, again, you all are lucky enough to live in a place where you have a lot of shielded lights, not a, a lot of glary lights. But the next time you see a glary light, hold your hand up and see how much better you can see. And then take it away and see how much worse you can see. If you're with friends, tell the friend to go on the other side of the light and kind of hide in the bushes and see how you can't see them unless you shield that light. So it's to make a point for sure. The other thing to say is cameras also make night skies like this look like this sometimes. Our eyes don't work in the same way as cameras, but it sure is nice to look at. Any other questions? Oh, over here. I just have a comment. Uh, I live just about two and a half or three miles north of campus and in a neighborhood where we don't have street lights. Mm -hmm. And every now and then somebody will say, well, maybe we should get street lights. And, and the neighborhood association, everybody says, no, no, we don't want street lights. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm amazed really at how, how many stars I see when I look at that scale. I'm, I think, you know, I'm, we're pretty close down even though we're in the middle of the mm -hmm. city. So. Mm -hmm. You know, even just things like street lights make a, a huge difference. A huge difference. Uh, so street lights are a fascinating subject. I was just in New York City on Saturday night, and uh, New York City is about to um, to replace or to retrofit about 250,000 street lights, and um, they have a really wonderful opportunity to get it right to put up shielded uh, fixtures. They're going to put in LEDs. Um, we could talk about the spectrum of LEDs and the danger of LEDs, uh, but also the possibilities of LEDs that you can program, program them. You can have them be lowered after a certain time at night, for example, and really do some phenomenal things. So, but street lights are, by and large, the thing that were the biggest part of that recipe that I was showing you earlier. Yeah, um, two, actually two questions, if I may. One, um, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the ecological effects on two or three different species of increased night light um, and light pollution? And then who was Bortle anyway? The Bortle scale, like I don't think I've, I, who was that person? Yeah, does anybody in here know him personally? Okay, it's possible. John Bortle, uh, is, I think he's still alive, uh, an amateur astronomer in upstate New York um, who created this scale in 2001 um, because he was tired of having primarily younger 
amateur astronomers call him up and say, you got to come out here, it's so dark. And he would get out there and he, he said, you know, this, it really isn't that dark. And you young you know, whippersnappers don't really know real darkness. So. Uh, and the other part of the question, the ecological effects. I mean, I think, again, the, um, the sea turtles stand out to me. The migrating birds that are drawn off course by the bright lights and circle the lights until they drop from exhaustion. Um, the moths, we all probably know that, uh, that image of moths circling uh, a street light, for example. Those street lights act like vacuums, just hoovering the insects out of the food chain, out of the ecosystem. And what they've found is that when new lights go into certain areas and they first attract those swarms of bugs, that as the years progress, those swarms get thinner and thinner as that protein is sucked from the food chain. So it has ripple effects up and down the food chain. Um, and then they found that bats, which are vitally important, for example, uh, a recent study estimated their contributions to US agriculture alone in the tens of billions of dollars in the way that they, pest control essentially, um, they're impacted by light at night, that they avoid lights or are drawn to lights Either way, there's a thousand species of bats, so they do a lot of different things, but they're impacted. So they're having, lights have a real effect on some of these creatures. We have a question up here. Yeah. I was curious about, um, in your research process, did you, did you fight or feel an urge to think about public policy, politics, solutions, that type of thing, and did you just go with it? How did you make decisions about what to include and, and that kind of, I don't know, it just seems like a mess. Like, where would you even go once you got there? Yeah. So there's an entire chapter, uh, I think it's the third to last chapter, that's about what we're doing, what, what different people are doing about it. So I talked to at, at, at activists. <laughs> what is that word? Activists. Um, I talked to, uh, right here, the folks in the International Dark Sky Association, for example, who are really doing a lot of good work. I traveled around to dark sky areas, like there's an island in the English Channel called Sark, that's a dark sky island, for example. Places that, uh, Mount Megantic National Park in Quebec, um, various places that have lighting ordinances like Tucson. I mean, you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would because you've traveled around, how different Tucson and Flagstaff are from every other city in the U.S. and that people that I talk to have no idea that you can have a lower level of lighting and won't be overrun by criminals or civilization will disappear or whatever it is. I mean, I'm obviously joking, but that's kind of the irrational fear that if we try to control this, everything will go haywire. It's we have a question here. What cities in the United States are making any kind of noticeable progress in this outside of some of the Western states like ourselves? Well, I hope that New York City is going to. I mean, the thing about New York is that uh, what happens in New York in the next few years will be a model for cities all over the world, frankly. They will look and see, what did New York do? Well, we're going to do that because they must know. Um, other cities are trying to make progress, but I again and again point to the Western cities. There's, the East is not 
can't think of any anyone I would point to in the East right now. Um, it's very important what happens in New York in the next year or two. We have a question here. Mm -hmm. uh, first, a, a comment about dark skies. <clears throat> if you look at the uh, contour maps, the color-coded maps you showed from the Italian astronomers, you can actually see some places in Arizona and New Mexico that are one. Mm -hmm. Out beyond Oregon Pipe National Monument, um, in the uh, White Mountains, and over into the Gila Wilderness, and areas like that. So there are a few here and there, but they're hard to find. Um, but I was wondering if you could say something about the, uh, the illusion of darkness. In other words, if you're in a bright city, and uh, one, in one extreme, uh, you, you know it's not dark. It's very bright. On the other hand, if you're out in, in a class one or class two sky, it doesn't look dark because it looks milky. And you can see because your night adaptation is there and the sky illuminates you. Mm -hmm. Even without stars, the sky illuminates you unless it's cloudy and then it's really dark. But somewhere in the middle you have, of those two extremes, you have the sense that it's really, really dark. <laughs> but it's not really. That's because your eyes aren't really dark adapted. Right. So could you say a little more about that? Or I don't know if I've said enough. But yeah, I mean. But there's some middle ground where you think it's really, really dark, but it isn't. Well, I think, you know, wherever I go and I ask people, um, does it get dark here at night? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> right? There's no sense that, I think, I say this in the book, I think that people's version, uh, ideas about darkness are that dark and really dark. And that's kind of their scale, you know. Um, but they don't really know what real, true, natural darkness really is. And that, one of the things I love and about darkness is, and light, and I think this, I talk about metaphoric darkness in the book as well, I think this is true for that too, is that it's in the darkest places that you begin to see light. And so when you go out to a really naturally dark place, as you say, it isn't, it becomes light again if it's, if it's a clear sky, especially, um, it's, it's part of life. And that's why I say, you know, the subtitle of the book is um, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. I mean that literally, but also metaphorically. I think we live in a time that's obsessed with artificial light, whether it's celebrity or soundbite or uh, money, all these things. Um, and natural darkness is part of being a, true, a real human being. It always has been that way. Uh, the, true, the hero myth in culture after culture always includes an experience of darkness. You cannot become a true human being without experiencing darkness. Um, and we, we're forgetting that. We're afraid of the dark. We run from it. We try to shoo it away with all our artificial light. I would like... Oh. One more question, and then I'll wrap up. So um, regarding sort of the health impacts of all of the artificial light, I know there are different types of light, and I know I just downloaded an app on my um, laptop called, I think it's Elux or something of the Flux. sort. Flux, that's it. Okay, perfect. That supposedly changes the type of light that comes through so it's easier to sleep. Is there, I'm not sure how accurate this is or if I've completely been ripped off or if it does help and if it does, if it makes sense to change the kind of lighting we use. It, it does make sense. I don't, I'm not a salesperson for Flux so I, I don't really know but I've heard from a number of people that it changes the uh, 
color of your screen on your computer, essentially along with time. Um, because what's happening is researchers have found that the most dangerous, or let me say it this way, the, the spectrum of light that they're, the wavelength of light that they're most troubled by is the light that we see as blue. Um, and that is the light that we're seeing more and more of in our world. So in our iPads, our computer screens, our phones, all that stuff, it has the most, it makes sense, right? Because blue lights tells our body to wake up. I mean, that's kind of how we've evolved. And so when you're, if you're staring at your iPad and then you try to go to sleep, your body's like, what happened, right? This doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's, uh, everyone I talk to encourages, number one, sleep in the dark. You know, try to block out the light. Certainly don't sleep with a light on, uh, a television on, anything like that. They don't know how much light has this effect on it, but they know some does. And so, I don't know. Flux might be a good, a good answer, but we're trying to get um, this blue light reduced. Okay, I'd like to remind you that our last lecture for the calendar year is two weeks from tonight, December the 2nd. It will be on Comet Ison, an unusual star, sun-grazing comet. So hopefully you can join us in two weeks. Now, if you go to the main lobby of Stewart Observatory, we should have punch and cookies set out. Enjoy. And Paul will be over there. You can buy books from our campus bookstore, and he'll be happy to sign them. Also, if you are a student, if you're in Dr. Holberg's class, there he is right there. The rest of you, I'll be down here stamping assignments. Let's thank Professor Bogard one more time.